uh, I want to encourage you to take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Um, we begin a uh, two-week, se- uh, excuse me, a two-month series in the Gospel of Matthew this weekend, and this is a really exciting opportunity for us to dig into God's Word together. Um, I want to share with you some really practical ways that you can make the most of our series through the Gospel of Matthew in the month of June and July. The first is is that hopefully you got a bookmark when you came in. Did anyone get a bookmark when you came in this morning? Yeah, if you got a bookmark, go like that with it, all right? A little air conditioner right there, all right? This is just a real practical way for us to be in sync as we're reading the Gospel of Matthew together over these two months, and I wanna encourage you to do it. I want you to know that if you read the Word of God it will be powerful in your life. And as you submit to the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God in your life, it will do an incredible work. The Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God will move in powerful ways in your life if you are willing to open up the Bible and to read it for yourself. And so we challenge you to do it. In fact, we've got ways to help you in that. There is this reading plan, but also in the nook. There is a journal. If you wanna journal your way through, there are, there's a study guide if you wanna study. There's also two commentaries available if you wanna do a deep dive. We just wanna encourage you to make the most of these two months going through the Gospel of Matthew. On the weekends, the teachers of our church, you're gonna hear from a number of teachers of our church over the next two months, and we have very purposefully looked at from those kind of three chapters a week is the reading plan. Out of those three chapters, what is a passage that we really believe at this time for our church family will bring great edification to our church family? And so you can know that on the weekends, the passages have been chosen very carefully that we might really pour into you and equip you and build you up. And you partner that together with you making an investment on a daily basis of reading in the Gospel of Matthew. And I believe this is gonna have a powerful impact in your life and in my life. And so let's do this together. Let's really, let's really get into the Gospel of Matthew together. It's gonna to be a, a great opportunity for us. I wanna share a little bit about the person of Matthew so we understand who's writing. The first thing that we need to understand is that Matthew's Jewish, which means that the culture he lives in at the time he writes is very different than English-speaking Americans in 2021. And so we need to look at this, not through the lens of our present day culture, but we need to look at this through the lens of his culture, because he's the one writing at a certain time and period uh, you know, in the work of Christ. And so it's important that we enter in and we think about his perspective and his view as we look at the Gospel of Matthew. The second thing that we need to know about Matthew is that he's a tax collector, and that's not a good thing. That's not a, pa- that's not a positive thing. Uh, the Jewish people were at odds with the Romans. The tax collector's job was on behalf of the Roman government to take money from the Jewish people. So he, as a Jewish person, really could be seen as someone who was a betrayer to the Jews. Like he, he's going against them. He's like a traitor because he's working with the Roman government to exact money from the Jewish people. And so, you know, he would not have been seen kindly. We learn a little bit about what type of people he hangs out with in Matthew 9, verse 10. It says, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, and that's in Matthew's house, 
Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The community that Matthew has are described as tax collectors, sinners, and sick. That's the type of people he hangs out with. Now, God doesn't leave him in that spot because in the verse prior to what I just read, it says, as Jesus passed on from there, he called a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed me. So he followed Jesus. So Jesus understands he's a person who's a tax collector and he hangs out with tax collectors, sinners, and people who are sick. And he says, I want you. You're who I want. I want you. I want you to get up and I want you to follow me. And what does Matthew do? The very first thing that Matthew does is he takes Jesus to his home where all of his friends who are tax collectors, sinners, and the sick, and he throws a party so that they can meet Jesus. And that's where we get the term a Matthew party. A Matthew party is a person who has come to know Jesus Christ and then they invite everybody that they know from their life over to their house so they can introduce Jesus to them. And I'm wondering, for some of you, if it's time to throw a Matthew party because God has transformed your life and it's time to invite all your friends over. It's time to invite everybody you know over and throw a party so you can share Jesus Christ with them. An incredible example. It's the first thing that Matthew does. We, Matthew's mentioned five times He's also mentioned twice by the name of Levi. But one of the things we learn about Matthew is that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, he's listed as one of those who are called to be an apostle. He called to himself 12 disciples. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Math Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So God calls him into this incredible place of leadership as an apostle. He ends up being one of the 12. Who's he writing to? Well, the people he's writing to are Jewish. He is writing very specifically to a Jewish audience. And for us to really understand and to receive this as someone who would have been a part of that audience, we need to understand that they would have been saturated in the word of God, the Old Testament. His audience would have understood the Old Testament. This is what Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says about this culture, this Jewish culture that embraces the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall not love the Lord your God with all your heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, this Jewish community that he's writing to, the Old Testament was a part of all their conversations. So as they're hanging out at their house, they're talking about the word of God. 
as they're with their kids, they're talking about the word of God. As they leave the house and they go for a walk or they go to work, they're talking about the word of God. And they're putting signs up in their home about the word of God. They're even tying things like clothing items onto their body that have pieces of the word of God in it. They are about the word of God. And so as he's writing to an audience who understands the Old Testament, he's using lots of Old Testament references. There are 43 quotes that Matthew uses directly from the Old Testament. 65 times he references the Old Testament. His audience would have embraced that and understood exactly what he's trying to accomplish. Pretty incredible. And that helps us understand how we begin this book. Because we're gonna look at an overview of the first three chapters today, but we're only gonna be looking at the Old Testament references that he uses. Because Matthew very strategically is starting, and I would phrase it this way, that it's like Matthew is saying, I'm going to prove to you, I'm gonna show you eight facts to prove that he's the one. You gotta look at the first three chapters of the book of Matthew as a strategic argument that Matthew is making to say, I am gonna prove to you that he's the Messiah. I am gonna prove to you that he is the Christ. I'm gonna prove to you that these facts show he's the one we've been waiting for. He's, he's it, he's God. This is our savior. In Matthew 5, 17, we see Jesus say, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What is Jesus saying? In my, in my Bible, Matthew starts right there, okay? So Jesus is saying, don't think I came to get rid of the Old Testament. Don't think I came to get rid of the law and the prophets. Don't think I came to destroy that and abolish it. No, I came because I'm the fulfillment of everything that's right here. Jesus is saying, I came to be the fulfillment of everything you've understood. And because Matthew knows that, he understands that, he sets up the beginning of his gospel account very purposefully to show Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the one. So fact number one is the covenant line. And Matthew starts off the, the book. It's super blunt. There's no hidden agenda. I mean, he just comes right out in the first verse and tells you exactly what he's doing. And this is what the verse says. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the book, and I'm gonna show you the genealogy of the person Jesus Christ, who is the son of David and is the son of Abraham. Why? Because God made a covenant with Abraham that he was gonna multiply him into a great nation, and he made a covenant with David that he would have a son who would reign on the throne forever, and he's saying, I am showing you that Jesus Christ, through the genealogy, he is the true heir to David's throne. So right at the beginning of the book, he's saying Jesus Christ is the true heir to the throne of King David. The kingly glory of Jesus Christ is front and center. The, the term kingdom of heaven is used 32 times in this gospel. It's a huge thing, showing Jesus Christ is the theme. He's the king. So in verse 17 it says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations, from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. When you think about the fact that Matthew's a, a tax collector, so he would have had a tax ledger. And think about the skill set involved with a tax ledger. He'd been very good with numbers and he'd been very good with names. He, when you read 
the first chapter of Matthew. You may have tried to read the first chapter of Matthew before and those first you know, 17 verses and you started to get to those names and you went, I don't even know what those, I can't even pronounce those names and you just skipped. And you just skipped right past all those names and you went to the next chapter, you got to the Christmas story, right? Because you were like, I don't know, this is where reading plans go to die, right? And, and you, just, you just moved, you moved right on to the next thing. Maybe that's happened to you before. What Matthew's doing in this moment, he probably did this from memory. He's got the tax collector's brain. He probably knew all of this information from memory because he was interested in taxing everybody. And so he knew everybody, he's like the IRS. He knew everybody's family, he knew all their dependents, he knew everybody who was connected to everybody because he was very interested in taxing them. But in this moment, he's saying, I'm showing you that he is the fulfillment of the covenant. He is the true heir to the throne. He traces the covenant line and he's saying, you see this genealogy? Can't you see it? It's proof that he's the one. Fact number one is the covenant line. Fact number two, we move on to the virgin birth. And in this passage, you know, we often use this passage during Christmas time, and we might think that the purpose of this passage being in the Gospel of Matthew is so that we understand how to celebrate Christmas. But what Matthew's doing in this moment with everything about Joseph and everything about the angels and everything that's being shared, what he's doing in this moment is he's showing it as the second fact that Jesus is the Messiah, which is why we read... In verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet that behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is a quote from Isaiah 7, verse 14. It's very important. He's saying there's a virgin, an actual virgin, which means she has not had sexual relations with anyone. She's an actual virgin and she's gonna conceive. How does that happen? Well, it explains that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit of God and that there's gonna be a son to be born and he's gonna be called Emmanuel because he's actually God with us. The son is actually God with us. And hundreds of years before that prophecy was made and Matthew's saying, can't you see it? Can't you see that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy? A virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit and its son was born and it is God with us. And so he sets up fact number two, the virgin birth. Then we get to fact number three, the Bethlehem king. And as you read through this this week, because it's part of this week's reading plan, you're gonna see all these stories and you're gonna see all these accounts and you're gonna be able to see it from this perspective as you dive into the word of God on your own this week. What happens next when we get to chapter two is there's the wise men. We know that story well, right? The wise men come and they have gifts they wanna bring, but before the wise men get to the Christ family to bring gifts, they stop at the king and they go and talk to King Herod. And as they're talking to King Herod, they basically say, hey, we saw the star go up in the sky and we've been following the star and now we've come to worship the new king. We wanna know where he is. Herod starts freaking out. He starts asking questions about the leaders and saying, what, what's, where, where's, the, where's this new king supposed to be born? All right, and this is the response that they give, and this is the quote from the Old Testament. They told him, they told Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea, this is verse five of chapter two, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And that's from Micah 5.2 and Ezekiel 34.23. And so the response that Herod receives is that this is where the king is supposed to be born. The king's supposed to be born 
in Bethlehem. And a ruler's gonna come from Bethlehem and it's also gonna be a shepherd of the people. And so in this moment, man, he, you know, Matthew is showing, he's saying, do you see that the prophecy is being fulfilled? The prophecy is being fulfilled that Jesus, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And you have to consider that, you know, if you understand the story of the Christ family, right, when they heard the news that she would be pregnant, she wasn't in Bethlehem. And no, so she was in a different location. Now she's in a second location, right, to have the child be born, and it's in Bethlehem. And the locations you're gonna see are really important as you see the thread here. After this, um, Herod basically tells these wise men, he says, hey, you know, you go find him. I wanna worship him too, so you go figure out where he is, and I'll come behind you, and I'll worship him. So the wise men come, they bring the gifts to the Christ family. We understand that story very well, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then the wise men are warned not to go back to Herod because Herod actually wants to kill the child. And so the wise men leave, they go a different direction to head back to their country. And right after that, then the Christ family is warned. An angel comes and warns Joseph and says, hey, Herod is gonna try and destroy the child. And so you need to leave, you need to flee. And so what we have with this Christ family now is that they move to Egypt. Just think about that. They got a young baby boy. They were in one location when they found out that she would conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're in a second location that he, Christ is born in in Bethlehem. And now they're moving to a third location that we understand, and it's going to Egypt. And this is where we have fact number four, the Egyptian call. And that seems odd. How is there gonna be an Egyptian call? Well, it happens because the Christ family is driven into Egypt because of the threat of Herod wanting to kill Jesus, the Christ child. And he rose in verse 14 of chapter two. This is talking about Joseph. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and they departed to Egypt. Think about that. A young family fleeing in the middle of the night to another nation. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And that is out of Hosea 11.1. 1. And what Matthew is doing very purposefully here as he's opening up his gospel is he's saying, can't you see that he's the, he's the one? Look at all of these prophecies that are being fulfilled, that Jesus Christ is the one we've been waiting for. Jesus Christ is the one that the Father has promised. And he's here, he's come, he's here. There's the covenant line that proves he's the one. There's the virgin birth that proves he's the one. The Bethlehem king, prophecy being fulfilled, that proves he's the one. And the Egyptian call. Man, isn't that odd? That God would say, out of Egypt I called my son? And yet here we see how it's fulfilled because of the threat on that son's life. And it's incredible. All these fa facts pointing. Now, when Matthew writes this, he writes all this decades after, after it happens. So he, he's, it's, it's you know, years later that he's now being, you know, the Holy Spirit of God is working through him to write all that we're seeing now. And so he's looking back. It's decades after you know, Christ has been resurrected and ascended to the heavens so we get to fact number five, and it gets really dark at fact number five, the male massacre. You go, wow, how does this come about? Well, Herod, in verse 16 of chapter two, he finds out that he's been tricked, specifically by the wise men, that the wise men didn't come back and tell him where, you know, where the Christ child was gonna be. He realizes he's been tricked, and he gets very upset. 
When Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. You may have read that before. And you may have read it as a part of the Christmas story. And maybe it hasn't sunk in. Let's let that hit our hearts at a deep way right now. Then Herod, when he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. That is brutal. That is painful. And that is part of the historical account of the coming of Christ. And it is super dark. It's horrible and tragic. And what Matthew is doing here is he's saying, this proves he's the one. Because the prophecy is being fulfilled. Verse 17 of chapter two. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, that a voice was heard in Ramah, and Ramah is another name for that region. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Why? Because people are mourning and they're crying uncontrollably. It says Rachel weeping for her children, Rachel being seen as the mother of Israel. So it's saying the mothers of Israel are weeping for their children and they refuse to be comforted Why? Because they are no more. They have been murdered. This is a prophecy being fulfilled. And Matthew's saying, this is dark and it's hard and it's tragic, but it's truth. And it's truth that proves that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Very strategically, he's laying out an argument saying he's the one. I'm proving to you he's the one. And you gotta remember, all of these prophecies would have been really well known to the audience. They may be new to us as we're hearing them right now in this framework, but his audience would have understood all the pieces of it. Fact number six, the hometown Nazareth. This one's a little interesting. In verse 23 of chapter two, it says, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that it was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. How this comes about is because though his family was in Egypt, they hear that Herod dies. And so they come back into the land of Israel. But then Joseph, being kind of afraid of, of the new king, Herod's son, they move to Galilee. And now, now we have this prophecy being fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. And the reason he would be called the Nazarene is not because that's where he was conceived, because that was a different location, and it's not because that's where he was born, because that was Bethlehem, and it's not because that's where he spent his toddler years, that was in Egypt. It was because this is the hometown he would be to be known from. And so he's called the Nazarene because it's the hometown he grew up in. What's interesting about this, and please do your homework on this, it says that he would, the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. If you can find in your Bible where it says that he would be called a Nazarene, call me. I haven't been able to find that. So what is this saying? What is this reference? It's not a direct quote that I understand, but what it's saying, I believe it to be, is that his audience would have understood the reference here of how this connected to what the prophets had said. Because of this, this is like saying so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called trash. That he would be called despised. 
that he would be called lowly because that audience would have understood what Nazareth represented and it was not an attractive place to be from. Maybe you'll remember this question that's in the Bible. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You remember hearing that? Search the scriptures and you'll see that no prophet arises from Nazareth. Do you remember that quote? They would have understand Nazareth is not where the Messiah is coming from. In the prophets, in Isaiah, in Zechariah, through David in the Psalms, we see that he's gonna be esteemed not, he's gonna be despised, he's gonna be rejected. All these prophecies about the Messiah, he'll be lowly, he'll be humble. And I believe that's what Matthew's doing right here. He's saying this proves that he's gonna be lowly and he's gonna be humble. He came from Nazareth. It's really, really interesting. Fact number six is the hometown Nazareth. Fact number seven is the wilderness voice. And in Matthew chapter three, it turns the story, it really, in this moment, what's interesting about the Gospel of Matthew, which is why I believe this is what he's trying to do, is he fast forwards, you know, 25 plus years in this moment. You miss the entire rest of, you know, the account of, of Christ's life in this Gospel. And it goes all the way to now John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is now coming, and he has uh, one message, and it's repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he comes and he's preaching this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew is showing how this is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. In verse three in chapter three, it says, for this was he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. The voice of the one in the wilderness is the voice of John the Baptist. And so Matthew's saying, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the voice, the, pro the prophecy that there would be a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And John the Baptist was a strange guy. He lived in the wilderness. He, you know, wore animal clothing, ate locusts and honey. And he's just, you know, he was this voice of, of one crying in the wilderness. And his message was to prepare the way of the Lord to make his path straight. What does that mean? He was going before Jesus in his ministry to talk to people about getting themselves straight before Christ would come and speak to him. And so his message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn around, turn around, leave what you're doing and head towards the kingdom of heaven. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Really incredible. So can you see what Matthew's doing here? He's saying, you know, the male massacre, that's fact number five. Fact number six is the hometown Nazareth. Fact number seven is the wilderness voice. All seven of these things that he's done so far are all about the Old Testament being fulfilled. What's really incredible, what he does next is he shows the baptism of Jesus Christ. And this is fact number eight. It's about the beloved son. And it is so incredible that he does seven Old Testament references, seven Old Testament facts that Jesus is fulfilling. And now in fact number eight, he approaches it differently and he shows the baptism. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by them. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Why is John doing this? John is preventing Jesus. He doesn't want to baptize Jesus for this one reason. John was baptizing people for a baptism of repentance. And John sees Jesus and says, you don't need to repent. You're perfect. You're sinless. Why would I baptize you for the purpose of repentance? See, John doesn't understand what's going on. So Jesus answers him, and Jesus says this. Let it be so now, for thus it is it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is saying, I'm, I don't need to be baptized for repentance, you're right, but I do need to be baptized right now to fulfill all righteousness. There's a different purpose for why Jesus was baptized. And then it says John consented. 
And when Jesus was baptized, use your imagination here, church family. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. What do you think it looked like that the heavens got ripped open? What do you think that scene was like? How'd you like to have that as a poster or an image or a picture hanging on your wall? The heavens were ripped open. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven. Remember, Matthew has used Old Testament quotes up until this point, and now Matthew is using a voice from heaven. Said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And those are quotes out of, uh, it's God quoting himself. God's quoting himself from Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1, as God the Father says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So Matthew's saying, look, all these facts, can you see it? All these facts, all these Old Testament facts, and then he gets to this last fact, the beloved son, and he says, if that wasn't enough, how about the audible, authoritative voice of God the Father, who is sovereign creator over all of mankind, speaking from heaven, ripping it open, descending like a dove on the Christ, and saying, he's the one. Incredible what Matthew's doing here. He said, I'm trying to prove to you, can't you see? He's the one. The covenant line, the virgin birth, the Bethlehem king, the Egyptian call, the male massacre, the hometown Nazareth, the wilderness voice, and to top it all off, he's the beloved son. And the father's saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. It's incredible. And so I would share with you that these facts prove that he's the one. But my question is, is he the one to you? Because ultimately we need to understand that Matthew is writing this gospel because he is eliciting a response for people to come to Jesus. Matthew wants people to come to Jesus. He wants his Jewish audience to come to Jesus. And now you fast forward to English-speaking Americans in the year 2021, and the gospel is used in the same way in our life. It is to draw us to Jesus. And so my question is, these facts prove he's the one, but is he the one for you? Have you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and him alone as your Lord God and as the Savior to forgive you from your sins? Because these facts prove he's the one. He is the prophesy, he's the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all these prophecies that were prophesied hundreds of years before he was born. And he fulfills them all in Matthew saying, it's proof, this is legal proof, he's the one, he's the Messiah, he is the son of God we've been waiting for, he is the savior we've been waiting for. But he is he your savior, and is he your God? And I would encourage you today, today is a great day for Jesus to be your Lord God. And today is a great day for Jesus to be your Savior and the forgiver of your sins. And I would encourage you to trust in Jesus Christ and to place your full faith and your full trust in Jesus Christ and him alone, that he would be your Savior, that he would be your Lord. In fact, we would love to talk to you about that. And right after the gathering here, there's a room right there, it has a sign right there that says the altar. That's just a fancy sign over two doors. And those two doors open up, and on the other side of those two doors, you know what we find? Two doors. And those two doors open up, and on the other side of those next two doors, it's just a room. And we wanna pray with you. Our leaders will be right in there. We would love to pray with you because it is so important for you to answer the question, 
Is Jesus the one for you? And we want to help you answer that question today. And we would love to pray with you and talk to you about accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so don't leave today if that's something that you need to do. And our team will be right there after the gathering. Also, I would encourage you regarding baptism, that if you have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ, it's time to go public with your faith. And at Jesus' baptism, the Father looks and says, this is my beloved Son. But when we're baptized, it's an opportunity for us to say, I'm going public because look, this is my beloved Savior. And I would encourage you that it is the right time to be baptized. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, let's go public. We want to help you go public, and we would love to talk to you about that, about you being baptized. Maybe it's time to throw a Matthew party, and you need to invite all of your friends who are tax collectors, sinners, and sick, and you need to invite them over, and you need to throw a party, and you need to tell them about Jesus, because your friends need to hear about Jesus. And so it's time to throw a party. It's time to throw a Matthew party and invite everyone over so that they might hear about how the grace of God has transformed your life. How you've repented and turned around and come towards the king of the kingdom of heaven. And that you might be able to share that story of what God has done in your life. God is up to amazing things. And I believe he's up to amazing things right here in our church family. And so let's be submissive to how God is working in each of our lives. Father God, Lord, we love you. So grateful to come together with the church family. God, that we might worship Jesus Christ. That we might open up the scriptures and study the word of God together. That we might be in Christian communion together and fellowship. Lord, that we would, you know, commission a group of of young people who are going to go into the mission field on a short-term mission. How exciting. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. Thank you for the goodness that you are to us and we are really blessed and we are in your hands and so Lord we submit to you and we love you Lord and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's family said, Amen. Amen.